Good on you. It's a good thing to bring to church. If you don't have a Bible, then you're either going to have to look over the shoulder of the person next to you, read the screen, or just take me at my word. Let me encourage you, if, if Paul the Apostle, the Berean church, did not take him at his word, but made sure what he said was true, it's a good habit to make sure what I'm saying to you is actually true. True to the best of my understanding of God anyway. If you've got a Bible there, turn with me to Matthew. We're going to get there eventually, but we're not going to start there. One day God was looking down at earth and he saw all of the inappropriate behaviour that was going on. He decided to send an earth down, an angel sorry, down to earth to check it out. And when the angel came back, he said to God, yeah, you know, it's pretty bad on earth. 95% of people are misbehaving and only 5% are doing the right thing. 95% are doing the wrong thing and 5% are doing the right thing. And God thought for a moment, he said, okay, well, maybe I better send down a second angel to get another opinion. So God called another angel, sent him down to earth for a time. That angel came back, walked up to God and he said, God, unfortunately, yeah, it's true. The earth is in massive, massive decline. 95% of people are misbehaving and only 5% are doing the right thing. So God was not pleased with this. So while he was debating about what he should do about the 95%, he thought, I'm going to send an email to the 5% that are good and I'm going to encourage them. Give them a little something to help them keep going. You know what he said in that email? So you didn't get it. I know, I just... <laughs> Father, we just pray right now, God, just open up our hearts to hear what the Spirit of God wants to say to each of us, Lord. Father, we're not here for a religious meeting, we're not here, God, just to uh, give you an hour and a half of our life and feel good about ourselves, Father. We're here because we want to grow in our knowledge, our understanding, uh, and shape and conform into the image of Jesus. So, God, we open ourselves up right now. Speak to us and have your way in us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been speaking the last few weeks. Who likes vegetables? Who likes vegetables? Okay, come on. I can understand, Tiff, you've got your kids here, you've got to put your hand, I get that, I understand all that. Some of you don't have kids here, you don't have to say that. Don't, just be honest. But take the mask off, we're at church, but take the mask off, for goodness sake. Who really likes vegetables? Oh, whatever. Here we go again, I'm made to feel like the odd one out. I'm not a massive fan of vegetables. When I was a kid and, and we used to get served up veggies, I would put the vegetables in my mouth and I'd chew them up and they were never really cooked great. There was not much flavour. Usually the way that veggies were cooked in my house, they were just chucked in a pot of boiling water and boiled. So they came out mushy, flavourless, soaking. They were terrible. So I'd put them in my mouth and I'd chew them. And then what I would do is I would... And I don't know why... I mean, if my kids did this to me, I'd pick up on it pretty quick. I would get up and go to the toilet about 15 times during dinner... And every time I'd be like, I've got to go to I'd walk up and I'd spit it all into the toilet and flush, store as much veggies as I could in the side of the mouth and go, I've got to go to the toilet again, out and spit it out into the toilet. I'd get rid of vegetables. I'm not a massive fan of vegetables, but how many of you know vegetables have stuff within them that are fantastic for our bodies? There's good stuff in veggies. If I was able to live on anything, I would probably live on maybe mint slice. I love mint slice biscuits. Am I like mint slice? I love mint slice biscuits. They're fantastic. I'm not a big sweet eater, but I love mint and I love peppermint and that sort of flavour, you know. And, and, and as I confessed to you humbly last week, uh, I would also gladly live on bacon and cheese zinger burgers at KFC. Bacon and cheese zinger burgers or the new Tower Stacker burger, I would live on those. The only problem is that if I live on that kind of stuff, it's not going to be very healthy 
for my body. Yeah? What I want to talk about today is probably a little bit more like vegetables than it probably is meat slice biscuits or bacon and cheese zingers. So what I want to share with us this morning is probably one of those things that's really good for us, but we probably don't like hearing this stuff. And as a result of that, there's not a lot of... There's not a great deal of preaching along, I guess, this line. It's not popular, if I can put it that way. But just because something's not popular doesn't make it real. Okay? So I just want to put it out there to you this morning that what I'm going to tell you is, 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 is not probably sweets and ice cream. It's, it's, it's vegetables. But if we can take it on board and go back to God with it, I believe it's good for not only us, but it's good for the body. It's good for all of us. It's good for the body of Christ to understand some of what we're going to talk about today. I want to continue on with what we have been talking about. We've been talking about laying a hold of the promises of God. The Bible says that, that God came to Israel and he gave them promises, but the Bible says that Israel had to take possession. And there's these two things going on. One is God giving to us, and the second thing is us taking possession. So the last couple of weeks we've been looking at what does it mean to take possession? of the things of God. What does it mean? Practically speaking, what are some things that we uh, are required or that we need to do or where we need to position or align ourselves to actually take a hold of the promises of God? Because God has great things for us. Amen? God has promises in his word. God has promises that he's put in your heart. There are things that God says to us that God calls us to, that God's saved us for, set us apart to receive, but we have a place to play in that. Just because God says it doesn't necessarily mean it will always happen. Okay? There was a whole generation of people that were promised they're going to go into the promised land, and that whole generation didn't go there because of some of their own choices and the things they did and things they didn't do. And so God was patient and gracious and let another generation go in, but the generation to whom the promise was made missed out. In Hebrews, it talks about that, that God, all of God's dealings with Israel are examples to us today. There are examples in the story and the journey of the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt and bondage and came into the promised land. There are, there are things in there, lessons in there for the church today. This is what the writer of Hebrews points back to. It and goes, there are lessons there for us. And so we're drawing a little bit on some of those lessons and we've been looking at what does it mean to take possession? What are we, what's required? What do we need to do? And the first thing we looked at is, number one, we need to know what the promises are. So we talked about the importance of getting into the Word of God. There's so much wonderful, fantastic stuff in here that God has, says about me, that God says about you, things God wants to give to us, things that God has promised to us. But if we don't know what is ours, we won't take possession of it. We won't try to get a hold of something that we don't know is rightfully and lawfully ours. So the first thing was to know what's ours, know what the promises of God are. The second thing we looked at last week was believe God. Not believing in God, but believing God. Many people believe in God. It's one thing to believe in a person, but do you believe that person? We just went through what has been called one of the most grotesque and bitter election campaigns in American history. And how many people believe in Donald Trump because he stood there, but how many people don't believe what he said? We all, they all believed in Hillary Clinton as a person. She's right there. You can't deny the existence of this person called Hillary Clinton. You believe in, you believe Hillary Clinton, but do you believe Hillary Clinton? I believe in her existence, but do I believe in what she says? And many people believe in the existence of God, but do we believe what God says? There's two different things. 
Hebrews talks about, now faith is, is, is this, it says that when we come to God, we must believe A, that he is, and B, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there's two parts to real biblical faith. One is the belief in the existence of God. The other in the, is the belief in the involvement of God. That God wants to get involved actively in our lives. And so we talked a bit about that last week. If you didn't hear those, you can jump on iTunes. I nailed it. iTunes, straight away. Got it. Jump on iTunes and go back and you can listen to the last couple of weeks. This week I want to talk about the third thing. When it comes to taking possession of the promises of God, first we need to know what the promises are. Secondly, we need to believe that those promises are for us. Believe what God says. Thirdly, we need to fulfill the conditions of those promises. We need to fulfill the conditions of those promises. God says a lot of things in the Word. There's this dichotomy in the Bible of um, uh, if then. You see it all over the Bible. If if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, I'll heal their land. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we ask for wisdom, then he will give us wisdom. And there's this, this if and then mentality that's right throughout the scriptures where God is saying, I've actually done everything that needs to be done for mankind. Now what I need is for you to respond to me so I can respond to you. I want you to respond to what I've done so I can respond to what you've done. But we initiate and take what we would consider to be the first step, but in actuality it's the second step because God has already taken the first step through the cross. God has already changed the world as we know it. God has already set things in place and changed the the way the world functions through the cross 2,000 years ago. It's, I guess, a little bit like this. Uh, When man went to the moon and man realised there was no gravity on the moon, how many of you know there was no gravity on the moon before man got there? There was already no gravity. It wasn't dependent on man getting there. When man got there, gravity didn't just suddenly disappear and all of a sudden there was... It's just that we realised there was no gravity there. There's been no gravity there since the day that God went like this and threw it out. There's things that are out there waiting to be discovered. And things are not conditional on what we know or don't know. God has done things. God has set things up. God has the way in which the world should function. And it's not like once we get in line, it's not like once we, we cry out to God and say, forgive me of my sin, then he forgives you. Forgiveness has already been purchased. It's already happened 2,000 years ago, but we activate it by doing something. It's not that God's sitting there going, I've got no idea how to handle that situation. But when you ask me for wisdom, then I'll start thinking about it and go, oh, here's an idea. The wisdom is there. The forgiveness is there. The grace is there. Everything of God is in motion. It's there waiting for us to tap into it. Waiting for us to do the if so that God can then come down and do the then. Joshua 1.8 says this. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This book of the law, this, this word of God, will not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate in it day and night. You'll read it. You'll think about it. Why? So that you can fill your head with a great deal of knowledge. No, so that you can do, so that you may observe to do all that's written in it. So that we will do something. God wants us to do something. God wants us to do something. Psalm 1, 
Verse 1 to 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Then he goes on and describes he's like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does will prosper. Why? Because he meditates. He stays away from the scornful. In other words, he's not doing his life by the principles of the world, but he's made a decision to do his life by the principles of God. He's not doing what the wicked says, what the scornful say, what the mockers say, what the scoffers say. He's not sitting at the feet of those people, sitting at the feet of the world and the way it does things. He's going, tell me how to handle relationships. Tell me what I should do with my finances. Tell me what I should do with my children. Tell me what I should do with my workmates. Tell me what sort of ethic I should have in life. He's not sitting at the feet of those people. He's sitting at the word of God, sitting in God's presence and going, what does God say? What does God say? Exactly the same thing God said to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Why? So that you shall do all that's written in it. Not so you'll just know a whole bunch of stuff, but so you'll do it. This book's a call to action. It's a call to action. And it's one thing to fill our heads with all kinds of knowledge about it, but at the end of the day, if we're not doing what it's saying, it's absolutely pointless. Knowledge puffs up. It just makes us proud. But it doesn't change anything in our life. Because God's not sitting there going, if you know this stuff, then I'll do this. He's saying, if you do. If you do, then I will do. If you do. If you do what is written in this book. If you do your relationships the way that I've outlined for you to do them. If you will treat people the way that I've said to treat them. If you will manage your financial affairs the way that I've said to manage them. If you will raise your children the way that I've told you to raise your children. If you will treat your husband, your wife, the way that I've said to treat your husband and to treat your wife. If you will treat your your neighbour the way that I've said to treat your neighbour. If you will treat your enemy the way I've told you to treat your enemy, then I will fulfil my promise. Then I will do what I said I will do. Then I will show up and do exactly what I said I would do. And you'll look back amazed at God. And the world around you will be amazed at the blessing of God that the Bible says overtakes us. The peace of God that will rest upon your life no matter what you're going through. The grace of God that will be upon you. The mercy of God that's upon you. It's this if-then. Some. 1, 1 to 3 gives us a picture of a man with a choice. He's got to make a choice. Will he follow the principles of the world or will he follow the principles of God? The promise is always conditional upon you heading in the right direction. Walking and making a step in the right direction. Stepping in the right direction. What separates the sheep from the goats? When Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats, what was the thing that separated the sheep and the goats. It was the same thing that separated the wise and the foolish builder. It's exactly the same thing that separated the virgins that carried their lamps, some with oil and some without. The very thing that separated that which was blessed and prosperous of God and that which wasn't. 
The only difference between all these stories in the Bible when we read through the words is this, what one group did and what one group didn't do. It's what they did do and what they didn't do. The wise men both heard the teaching of Jesus. The wise men were both sitting in church on Sunday. The wise men were both building a house. The wise men both had the same storm come against them on the same day in the same way. They both had the same wind blow against them, the same hail come and smash and damage their window. They both had the same sea rage against them. The tide came up, one fell, one stood. What was the difference? The one who did what Jesus said, his house stood. And the one who didn't do what Jesus said, his house fell. The sheep and the goats. Put the sheep on his left and the goats on his right. And then Jesus says, you know, um, blessed are you, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And they looked at him and they said, Lord, when do we do this? And he said, when you've done it to the least of these. They did something. They clothed people. They fed the hungry. They gave drink to the thirsty. They visited the person in prison. They did stuff. They did something with what they knew to do. And then he goes over to the goats and he goes, Cursed are you. Because I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was in prison, you did not visit me. And they said, when? And he says the same thing. And in as much as you haven't done it, to a world of people that I'm passionately, passionately in love with, in as much as you haven't done it to them, you haven't done something, you haven't done it to me. The thing that separates these people in the Bible when we read through it and we cut it back to its basic form is what they did do and what they didn't do. And we see this right from the very inception. What does God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? He says, have all this. This is all yours. Live here. These are the principles of life. You'll be successful. Stay away from that. And they said, yep, we'll do this. And one day decided, we'll go over here. And what happened when they started to go outside of what God wanted? The blessing of God began to disappear from their life. They found themselves alienated from God. And we read from Genesis right through to Revelation of nations that decide to live by the law of God. And when I say the law of God, I'm not talking about following some set of rules, a rule book. A young man came to Jesus once and he said, what's the the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, let's cut it back to its core. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. The second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. He cut it right back. He said, it's not about dot points and making sure you do. It's just about having that passion, that heart of love for God and having that heart of compassion and love for people. We will make mistakes and we don't always get it right and I'm not talking about being perfect. But what I'm saying is from Genesis to Revelation, when our hearts are right before God and we're heading in the right direction, the blessing and the favour of God is there. We want the promises of God. It's almost like Western Christianity these days. We uphold our rights in God, but we don't care about our responsibilities. We want the rights of God, but we don't want the responsibilities. We want God to bless us and give us everything. We want God to to make us wealthy and rich and happy and, and everything like that, but we don't want to do anything else that the Gospels talk about. We don't want to sacrifice for the sake of other people. We don't want to love people who are different to ourselves. But God's going, you know what? I've got great and precious promises for you. And I've done everything I can. Now I'm waiting for you to activate the if so that I can bring in the then. I want you to activate the if so that I can 
bring in the them. Here's the thing. If we're not doing everything God's saying, then we're not getting everything God's giving. If we're not doing everything God's saying, then we're not getting everything God's giving. Now, I'm not talking about God's unconditional love. We can't earn that. But how many of you know you had to do something to activate that in your life anyway? You had to repent, call upon the name of the Lord, make a decision to follow Christ. We still had to do something to activate that promise in our life. God's love is unconditional for us, so I'm not sitting here going, we need to earn God's love. We don't earn the love of God that's given to us freely by grace. We do not earn that. We do not deserve that. We never will deserve that. God loves us right now as you are. Not as you should be, but he loves you as you are right now, warts and all. I know that people don't always do that. That's why we put masks on a lot and we're afraid to let ourselves really out because what would people think of me if you really knew what I was like? But God's not like that. Guess what? God knows really what you're like and he's still madly, passionately in love with you. That doesn't change. So I'm not talking about earning the love of God. God and Adam were walking through the garden. I was reading this this morning. They were discussing various things. And at one point, Adam says, Wow, God, you sure made Eve awfully beautiful, just amazingly beautiful. The Lord said, Yes, my son, that is so you would love her very, very deeply. And after a brief moment, Adam hesitatingly commented, But Lord, you made Eve not too smart. Ah, yes, said God, that is so she would love you very, very deeply. Sometimes we kind of think that way about God. The only reason God loves us is because maybe he's a little bit blind to a few areas of our life. And if he really knew those areas, maybe he wouldn't. You know, sometimes we feel like God is a bit like that. He's just that little bit down on knowledge. If he really knew everything about us, then surely he wouldn't love us the way the Bible says. But the Bible says he loves us conditional on the fact that he knows everything about you. So we're not talking about earning God's love. But we're talking about receiving the promises. See, God loved Israel with a passion. But God loving them was not enough for them to get into the promised land. There were still some things they had to do to walk into the promises of God. The outworking of God's love in our lives is conditional upon our acceptance of that fact. We need to accept the fact that God loves us. Otherwise, we'll never walk into the promise of God's love if we don't accept the fact that he loves us. You remember when Jesus came to you and you first accepted him into your life? None of us said, Lord, I'll have all you have to give and I'll give you a third of me. I remember when I came to Christ, I meant every bit of it. I just wanted all of God. I haven't always been faithful towards that. and It's a journey as I slowly unpack more and more of my life and give more of myself to God. But when I came to Christ, I came with all my heart and said, God, I give you everything. I give you everything. Thing to do with me. I'll give you every part of me. Because that's what biblical Christianity is. It's based upon the presupposition that everything we have we give to God. It's based upon the fact that we give our whole life over to him just as he has given his whole life over to us. Not bits and pieces but all of it. But he understands by his grace and mercy that there are rooms in our house that we lock the door and it takes time but he's patient and gracious and allows us to open ourselves up to him. 
But if we want everything God wants to give to us, we've got to learn to do life the way that God wants us to do it. As frightening as what that is, as scary as what that might be, as much as certain times it makes no sense to go the way God says, but God still wants us to follow him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to give our lives over to him. Here's the thing. I don't believe God wants us to necessarily die for our faith like a lot of other people do. There are people in the world right now who are dying for their faith. But I think in the West there's something even more frightening than that, and that is actually having to live for it. Actually having to live for it. Having to wake up every day and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Today, God, I'm going to do things the way that you want me to do them. Not the way I want, not the way I feel, not based on what I see. But I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to handle the situations of life the way you want me to handle them. Because as I do that, I'm exercising faith, saying, God, your authority, your, the way you see things and what you say is a greater authority than the way I see things or want to do things. And if I want to receive everything that you have for me in this area of my life, I've got to trust you. At some point, I've got to draw a line in the sand. At some point, I've got to make the decision to go, you know what, I'm abandoning self, abandoning everything else, and I'm just going to dive into the river of faith, and I'm going to run with God. And as, as, as weird as what it feels, as wrong as what it even may seem in my head, God, if I know that this is what you say, I'm going to do it. There might be everything within me, every fibre of my being fighting against it because I don't want to love my enemy. I don't want to pray for those who persecute me. I want to give it back to them. But God, you say do it. So I'm going to do it. God, I don't want to uh, 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 give grace when others are giving to me. I don't want to be patient with people. God, I don't want to uh, uh, have this area of my life dictated to by what you say. But God, if I want all that you have for me, then I've got to give everything to you. Now, I've got to, at some point in my life, some part of my Christian journey, make that defining choice to go, God, I'm going to go with you. Matthew chapter 16. This is one of my favorite stories. Talk about going from the penthouse to the outhouse in a moment. Jesus is standing there with his disciples. And he answers them this question. He says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. And Jesus turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, Peter mouths up really quick like he usually did. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the one that Isaiah wrote about. You are the one that all the Old Testament prophets talked about. You are that one. You are the one that our fathers and our forefathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our great-great-great-grandfathers, you are the one that King David, all those years ago, prophesied about and said would come and will be a deliverer of not only the Jews but the Gentiles. You are that one that we have been waiting for. And Jesus looks at him and says these words. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. In other words, you can't get that understanding just through somebody telling you. Until God himself opens up your heart by the Holy Spirit and gives you a revelation of Christ, you will never get it. You won't get it. You won't get it. If Peter, walking with Jesus all those years, could not see who Jesus was when he calmed the storms, when he raised the dead, when he cleansed the lepers, when he fed the thousands, if all that stuff was still not enough for Peter to see it, apart from a revelation from God, then none of us can. It's that moment of revelation where God opens our eyes and we go, I get it, you're the son of God. And this happened to Peter. And Jesus says this, he says, you are no longer Simon, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. If you look at the Greek words there, 
What he says here is he says, Peter, you're a pebble. You're a, a part of the rock. And on this rock, the rock being the revelation of Christ, that's what the church is built upon, is the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the foundational cornerstone of our faith. Take that out of our faith and we don't have a faith. We've just got a philosophy, an idealism, a way of doing life. But he says no. And he says to Peter, you are Petros. Petros meaning part of the rock. And, 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 and Christ is the rock. And so what he's saying is you're a part of this thing that this revelation is going to build the church. Now Peter must have been feeling pretty good. I'm the first one to get it. Nobody else got it. I got it. I know who Jesus is. Turned around to the other 11 and went... Yes. Now watch what happens in the very next conversation. As soon as Peter says this, I know who you are. Jesus goes, right. Well then surely you must be ready for the next bit. You know who I am. You're ready for this next bit. And here's what he says in verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't want to rebuke Jesus. Who wants to rebuke Jesus? Peter then starts to rebuke the Son of God, the one that he just got a revelation of. Then Peter took him aside in verse 22 and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And in verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! One minute he's saying, you are this pebble, you're joined to the rock, you're part of this. And next thing he's calling him literally Satan. You are Satan, get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me. Why was he an offence? For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What an amazing turnaround. From way up here one minute, Jesus saying, man, you've got it. You've hit the nail on the head. You've hit the jackpot. Yes, you're the first one to get it. And the next breath, you're Satan. Get behind me. Jesus, you want to be emotionally stable, wouldn't you? Hanging out with Jesus. He picks you up and crush you like that. Jesus then says to the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, follow me, for whoever desires to save his life. And I guess the challenge for us, the question for us when it comes to the promises of God, when it comes to wanting to get everything that God has for us, be everything God wants us to be, here's the pivotal question. What do you desire the most? What do you desire the most? Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me will deny himself. Take up his cross. His cross. It's personal. It's between you and God. What that looks like for you. Whoever desires to come after me will deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. He says, what do you desire? Do you desire to save your own life? Knowing at the end you're going to lose it? Do everything your own way? Live by your own principles, follow the world, knowing at the end you're going to lose everything? Or do you want to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me? Do things my way, live by my principles. Make a choice to go my way. You see, what freaked Peter out about what he heard Jesus say was this. These disciples, back in the day, they understood what a disciple was. A disciple was a follower. To us, disciple is just a word that, that describes 12 people. 
But back then, they understood the context of discipleship. If you were a disciple, you followed somebody. You followed them. You became like them. And then Jesus starts talking about dying, and Peter's going, hang on a second, I didn't sign up for this. Hang on a second, we're, we're, we're taking over the world here. We're in miracles and wonders, and so we're saying, we didn't sign up to die. What are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? You know why? Because he knew that if that's the way the master goes, then that's the way we will go. If he's going to die, and we're his disciples and we're following, guess what that means? That we're going to have to die too. I don't know whether Peter realised that was a physical death or not. But he understood enough about discipleship to know the way of the master is the way of the follower. And if the master's going this way, this path of self-denial, this path of putting the father first, even in his decisions, even to the point of death, then that's what's expected of me, Peter's thinking. And Jesus says, you're right. But you'll never come with me, Peter, if you want to keep your life. If you want to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, I guarantee, I promise you, you'll find it. You'll find it. You'll find a dimension of living that you will never discover apart from God, apart from faith and apart from obedience. You will discover things in God. You will find things. You'll receive things. You'll have things. You'll hear things. You'll understand things that are not going to be fathomed if you continue to go your own way. If you continue to build your life upon the principles of the world, what makes sense always, what feels good, until we draw that line in the sand and we deny ourselves and we humbly come before God and say, God, you show me what that looks like for me because you want me to take up my cross. I'm not taking up your cross and you're not taking up my cross. You're taking up your cross. It's personal. Father, what does my cross look like? What does denial of self look like for me? I can't push it on you and you can't push it on me because it's between you and him, it's between me and him. But I know this, the only way I'm going to be everything God wants me to be, receive everything God has for me, do everything God wants me to do is when I get that revelation. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the right response is that I give myself for him. I give myself back to him. That word deny in, in, in verse 24 literally means to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone, to forget oneself, lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. It's a heavy word. It's a heavy word. It doesn't mean that God will take everything from us, but it means that what we have, we have with the blessing, the favour, the grace, the peace of God. Because we're not fighting against God's plan. We're not fighting against what God wants for us. I started out by saying that this is vegetables, not ice cream. Because we don't like talking about self-denial. But the unfortunate thing is it's in there. It's in the Bible. And it's a core message of the Gospels. It's a core message of the letters. Romans talks about being dead to self, alive to Christ. Ephesians talks about no longer right. Philippians, they all talk about this aspect of Christianity where we deny self, we take up cross and we go after God. And it's about making that decision that God, there's two ways I can live my life. I can live by the elementary principles of this world and the way the world says things should be and the way that I'm shaped, or I can do it the way that God says to do it. I was reading a story once about a prayer breakfast that Abraham Lincoln went to. 
during the American Civil War and it was a bunch of ministers got him together and they said this to him. They said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. His response to them was, no, let us pray that we are on God's side. Let us pray that we are on God's side. What a profound answer. Are we on God's side? Or are we saying to God, get on ours? Because God has a way of doing life. God has things in place and he says, if you will deny self, if you will take up your cross, if you'll follow me, if you will lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I'll give you life. I'll give you all the things that you're striving to try to get through the principles of the world. He says, forget that. Come after me and I will give you so much more. But you've got to make the choice to come after me because you're not getting it if you're walking that way. If, then... If, then. Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician, physicist, he was a Christian philosopher in the 1600s, he said this. He said, God, you have made us in your image and we have returned the favour. God, you have made us in your image and we have returned the favour. A God made in the image of man is no God at all. Jesus was the express image of the invisible God. He's our centre point. What he said goes. The way he taught us to live. The example that he modelled for us, what he showed us. It's tough. Not always easy. But here's the thing I found. When I make that decision, it's amazing how the power of God's grace and the power of God's spirit gets in behind us like a wind and pushes us, propels us in the right direction that we need to go. You know, the most some Christians there's nothing more frustrating, I reckon than a lukewarm believer. People who have got one foot over here and one foot over here. They're the most frustrated humans on planet Earth. I see, I see people over here who are in the world and they're into it 100% and they're dived into it and they're gone. And that's what they do and that's their life and they think, you know, think that it gives them this, it gives them that, whatever, but they're going hardcore after it. And then there are people over here and we read about their stories and we're amazed. Every time we read of somebody that's truly denied themselves, taken up the cross and gone after Christ, don't we, we get amazed about that, don't we? We make movies about it. We write books about a person, one person that actually completely sold out to Christ, believes their faith, does what God says. We're so amazed when we see that, that we, we put them up on pedestals in Christianity And we look up at them like, oh, this should be normal. All they're doing is displaying to us, you know what, this is actually fairly normal Christianity. If you will trust God, if you will live life the way that God says to, God will back himself. It's it's what he does. It's what he does. He doesn't lie to us. He's telling us the truth. I want to just pray for us this morning. I hope that's okay. Like I said, vegetables are good for you. You know, um, I hope you're not sitting there running through your head going, what church can I go to next week? Um, it's not always like this. But every now and then, I just we need to be real with ourselves. We need to be real with God. You know, I, I love this book. I love this book. I really do. And I get amazed when I get into it and I see the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And, and I think, you know what? all the things that you want to give to me, all the things that you have for me, 
all the things that you say about me, I mean, it's not much of a trade-off, really. What you have given to me, what you offer me to, to deny myself and to make that decision to go, it's, it's really not, it's not that much of a trade-off, really. It's almost a no-brainer. How could I not want everything God has for me? How could I not? How could I not? I just want to pray for us this morning. I wonder... I wonder with the things that are in this book, I wonder with the promises of God, the things that God has said to you, the things that you read about. I wonder if you sit there. I wonder if, if, if you feel like there's this great chasm between what you read about who God is and what he has for you and, 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 and maybe your experience. And I wonder whether over the last few weeks we've talked about something that might help you bridge that gap. Maybe you don't know what the promises of God are. You know, maybe you, you, you're ignorant of them. Maybe you're just getting all your reference points and that from the way the world does stuff. And Christianity is just a bit of a side thing. Maybe the word of God is just sort of there. And if you need it and you're desperate and you need your fix, you go back to it. But we don't live in it. Charles Spurgeon, I think it was once, he said, visit books regularly but live in this one. He said, visit books regularly but live in this one. Maybe you don't know what the promises are. Maybe that's the thing for you. Maybe you need to get into this word. You need to find what God has to say about you, about your world, about your situations. Or maybe you know what he says, but you haven't made that decision to trust yet. Maybe you haven't made that decision to go, no, I'm going to choose to believe regardless of what I see, regardless of what I feel. I'm going to make the choice to believe God today. I'm going to make the choice. Or maybe you know what he says, and maybe you're choosing to believe, but you're sitting back thinking, but I just believe, so it should happen. And God's going, no. Just because you believe. You, if you really believe, faith has actions. James says, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, I'll show you my faith by what I do. It will be evident to you by what I do. I'll do something to show you that I believe that. I won't just sit back like some mystic going, oh, I believe this, I believe this, it shall happen. He says, no, no, no. Don't be mystical about this thing called faith. If we believe something, we will go after it. James says this. He says, even the demons of hell believe in God and they tremble. Even demons have an outworking of faith. They tremble. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you need to, to start to outwork. Maybe there's something you need to do. Maybe you need to release forgiveness to somebody you don't want to forgive. Maybe you need to make a choice to do something, to, to, to take a step towards loving someone that you don't want to love. Maybe you need to let go of something you don't want to let go of. Maybe you need to stop something you don't want to stop. Maybe you need to start something you don't want to start. Whatever it is, I want to pray for us this morning. If we could all just stand together. We say it every week here at Arise, but I don't, we don't care for just another hour and a half uh, spiritual meeting, you know. I, I just none of us care for that. I want to be a part of a community that takes a hold of this and goes, "Yep, yeah, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to step out into that invisible void." Anyone ever seen Indiana Jones? Yeah, the very first one. It's one of my favourite films, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and there's a scene towards the end there where Indiana Jones is on one side of a massive precipice and he looks across the other side and there's this cave and inside the cave is the golden chalice, the cup of Christ that he drank. Apparently he had uh, commun fellowship, communion with his disciples. And it's way over there where Luke is and Harrison Ford is one of my favourite action stars. As old as what he gets, I don't care. 
he shows me that I could be 90 and still climb mountains. And he's standing here, and there's the cave over there. And he's looking, and he's thinking, how? You look down, and you cannot see the bottom of this precipice. And then he remembers something that was written, a clue that he picked up along the way. And he remembers something that was written. And he does this. He looks up straight ahead. He puts his hands like this. He puts a foot forward, and then he moves all his weight forward. And he falls about a foot, and then bang, he lands on something, and there's nothing there. He grabs a pile of sand, and he throws it, and all of a sudden this bridge appears. What a beautiful, fantastic, strong picture of faith. Standing on that edge going, well, God, I remember this is what you said about this situation. I remember this is what you said. This is how I should live my life. This is how I should handle this circumstance. This is what I should do. So here's what I'm going to do, God. I can stand there, know all the stuff. I know what the promise is. I can sit there and go, yes, I believe it. But until I put my foot over that big precipice and until I look up and I lean forward and I overbalance and I fall towards that hole, until I do that, I'm not expressing faith. And faith is like that. We want to sit back and wait till we see everything first. People, it doesn't work like that in the dimension of God. It never has. Read the word of God. God comes to Abraham. Get up, leave your place, go somewhere. Abraham has to go home and say to his wife, love, we're packing up the family and we're going to move. And his wife looks at him and says, where are we going? And he says, I've got no idea. As a matter of fact, the God who spoke to me, see, he was a child then, he worshipped moon gods. His ancestry was worshipping the God of the moon. And this other God, Yahweh, speaks to him and says, pack up everything and go. Where are we going? None of your business. Just pack up and go. He didn't know where he was supposed to go. He just knew where he wasn't meant to be and that was where he was. So he had to take that step of faith. He had to go. And from Abraham right through the Bible, we see people having to make this decision, have that defining moment in their life. What am I going to do? What's my life about? How am I going to go forward from here? And they're the people that we marvel at, yet they were men and women just like you and me. The only difference between us and them is they made the hard choice. They backed God and they went with it. Father, I want to just pray for each of us in this room this morning, God. Father, I pray. I pray, Lord, that we would not waste our lives. God, we would not waste our lives by running after the principles of the world. Father, we wouldn't waste our lives by reading about a supernatural God but not believing that's who you are. God, we wouldn't waste our lives reading about how you say we should handle situations but then not doing it. God, I pray that we wouldn't waste our lives living in this natural world. God, running after the things the world runs after, trying to mimic the world, trying to be like them, only trying to be a better version of them. But God, we'd wake up and we would read your word and we would see that we are a new creation that it's no longer us that live, but Christ, you are literally on the inside of us by the Holy Spirit wanting to live through us, wanting to take a hold of our hands, wanting to use our feet, wanting to use our voices, wanting to let your heart come through us of compassion, of love, of grace, of mercy. God, wanting to have that heart of faith as Jesus, you trusted the Father. So you want that faith and trust to come through us to trust the Father as well. And God, I pray for each of us in this room right now, God, whatever the blockages are, whatever it is in our world that's stopping us from walking into the full potential of God, that's stopping us walking to every promise you have, stopping us walking to being everything that you say we are, becoming everything that you've called us to become, God, anything that is in the way, God, I pray by your Spirit, speak to us. Show us what those things are, God. 
Lord, show us what our cross is, God. What does it look like for me today to take up my cross and to follow you? What does it look like for me personally? What does it look like for each of us in this room to take up our own personal cross? Not look at somebody else and go, well, that must be how it has to be done and run around trying to look like other believers, run around trying to look like other men and women of God when we have a personal journey with you ourselves. Help us, Father. Break through that which needs to be broken through. Lead us, guide us by your spirit, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hang around up the front here, me and Jackie. I'd love to pray with people today. If, if, if anything, over the last few weeks, you feel like God's been speaking to you, God's been challenging you, we would love to pray for you this morning. So we're going to hang around up the front here. Um, please, the rest of you, feel free. There's more tea and coffee up the back. I think there might be some, some um, cake and stuff over there. Uh, I know it was probably uh, a plate full of broccoli this morning. I get that. But you know what? Every now and then we have to have broccoli. Every now and then we have to eat carrots. And you know what? God forbid every now and then we might have to eat a pumpkin. And I hate pumpkins with a passion. But I know they're good for me, amen? God bless, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you in connect groups. We'll see you in uh, church next week, if not before.